Hello everyone, welcome to our Saturday broadcast. As usual, we will start with a 15-minute meditation. And during that time, it's an opportunity for our helpers to gather questions. So if you have questions, please feel free to post them in the chat. And they will be collected and they will be stratified. And we'll answer the ones most relating to meditation practice and most in need of an answer in the sense of being questions about one's own meditation practice or one's own use of the practice. in one's life. And if you don't have questions, or once you've asked your questions, just close your eyes, sit cross-legged, watch your stomach rising, falling. You can get up and do walking meditation, watch your foot moving. If you haven't read our booklet or begun practice in our tradition, you can Check out our booklet on our website. And take the time to go over how to do walking, how to do sitting. And we'll start with questions and answers at 15 minutes after the hour.
All right. Thank you for meditating with us. And looks like we have a bunch of questions, so we'll get started in the Q&A. You're welcome to post more questions in the chat if you have them. And from now on, anything that's not a question will be removed from chat. Thank you, Bhante. We have questions ready. I try to note the nature of thoughts during meditation, but thoughts about a few problems in my life seem to overpower and make me feel stressed, and I can't seem to simply ignore them. How should I handle it? Well, well noting isn't about no, about ignoring them, right? Um, so I guess what you're saying is you're okay with noting things that don't overpower you and don't make you feel stressed, but there's an implication that somehow you should ignore them when they overpower you and make you feel stressed, or, or in other words, uh, you don't know, you don't feel like you have any choice. Um, but so, because you can't note them, uh, you feel like you should find some way to ignore them, or so on. I mean, that that's a red herring. You shouldn't try to find a way to ignore them. Uh, so that part is something you should let go of trying to not deal with them. Um, as far as things overpowering you, uh, it, it's often just a judgment rather than any actual fact. Like um, it, it is possible that something completely overwhelms you. And in that case, you should just note overwhelmed, overwhelmed. And that's possibly what you should do at this point. Uh, but it's also common for that perception of something being overpowering uh, as just being a reaction. So a, a fear of it, a disliking of it, a, and the stress, usually. So um, when something makes you feel stressed, it's the stress that you should focus on. It's the stress that is present. So then you would just note to yourself, stress, stress. I mean, the short answer is that there's no problem with this process that you're talking about per se. It's just a, another sequence of events and you try to note whatever arises. Um, seeing it as a problem is what generally causes problems. So when you get upset about it or... Um, overwhelmed in the sense that you just don't know what to do about it so this feeling of of helplessness and so on and and there's no need for that because you're not helpless you can note whenever you give rise to the thought what should i do you 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 can as an answer cultivate mindfulness so just say to yourself stress stress it's quite simple you can still just note the thoughts it's a bit of a mistake often to we often fall into the mistake of of uh, thinking that that was somehow going to fix the problem, that noting is somehow magically magically going to change the situation. The situation is constantly changing. Your your state of mind is constantly changing, but that's not the purpose of noting. That's not the state of mind that you need going into the practice. Going, you have to go into the practice with a intention to face your experiences, not to change them or fix them. Because if you go in with that idea of trying to change or fix, you're you're just going to get greedy and have expectations and be frustrated. You know, it's just reaction and and expectation. It's not objective. It's not clear-minded. Try to come in just in terms of 
I'm going to face my experiences, watch them come, watch them go. Should I limit how many times I note something in order to go back to the breath? For example, should I note distracted three times, even when the distraction continues on? Continue noting it until it goes away. If after a long time it doesn't go away, then just go back anyway. But stay with it for quite some time. When I meditate with my eyes half open, the eyelids are twitching and I can't get them to rest. Are there any advantages to meditating with your eyes closed? I think Buddha said, with his eyes closed. Uh, yeah, we meditate with our eyes closed, so I can see there being a problem with trying to keep them half open. doesn't seem to be any reason to do that. When you do sitting meditation, you're very much focused on your stomach, so there's no reason to have your eyes open. In walking meditation, you have to have your eyes open, or else it's uh, hard to, it's distracting because you don't know when to stop and so on. So in walking, keep your eyes open, but your mind is still with your feet. Your eyes are only open as a way of knowing when the walking path is gone. It's time to turn around when you've come to the end. Is noting wanting the same as noting craving and wishing? Well, note whichever one you experience, how it how it strikes you. If it strikes you as wanting, say wanting. It strikes, it strikes you as craving, say craving. Don't try and find some special word. There's no real benefit from finding a, a particular word or, or trying a new word as, as though it will somehow have better better results. Again, that goes back to this idea of trying to find some trick to fix things, to change things. Noting is just about facing, so if it is if it is what you're experiencing, just note that. I love meditation, but most of the time I'm not in the mood to meditate because I feel good. How can I overcome myself and meditate? Well, it can be a little bit of a problem to meditate because you like it. Because um, as you can see, that's that's not a very good uh, impetus. It, it doesn't it doesn't instigate them or doesn't push the mind to meditate. If you if you only do it because it makes you feel good, then yeah, if you feel good, why would you do it? So meditation is not for the purpose of feeling good, though it's a, a good thing to to recognize. It's actually quite common. Um, we would meditate for the purpose of feeling better. So we only practice when we feel suffering and so on. You should practice meditation for the purpose of becoming enlightened, for the purpose of attaining the state of clarity of mind, freeing yourself from delusion and so on. Uh, so when you're in a good mood, you should be mindful of that. And really the best way to cultivate a, a inclination to meditate is to be mindful outside of practice. So be mindful of the feelings of not wanting to meditate. Be mindful of the feelings of liking your experience now. 
again, not judging them, but just noting them. When you're more mindful, it will become uh, easier to incline the mind towards actually doing formal meditation. But um, another big thing is that you need wholesome qualities of mind. You need um, you need goodness in your mind in order to even think to meditate. So the desire, the inclination against meditating is due to unwholesomeness like craving and clinging and aversion and delusion and so on. It's due to defilement. So it's something that you have to cultivate through various means. You know, the better if you're the better a person you are, the more inclined you are to practice meditation. So try and find ways to improve the your mental health and uh, the the wholesomeness in your mind by being a good person, by helping others, by being kind, by being thoughtful, by being patient, uh, try by giving up unwholesome activities, that sort of thing. When doing labeling, how do we know if we are doing it right? Does it also eventually lead to concentration of mind? Well, it, it's a bit misleading to ask about doing it right, a little bit misleading because it, it often implies a sense that there should be some thing more, like some result or some consequence. You, There is a way to know that you're doing it right, but it's simply that your mind is clear, that you're clearly aware of the experience. It's often quite underwhelming, as people expect uh, some concentration of mind, whatever that might mean. Yes, it does lead to concentration of mind every moment that you do it, and it becomes habitual so that your overall state of concentration becomes greater, but it's a real problem to fixate and focus on that sort of state as the result of meditation because it's a diversion from the actual practice of mindfulness. Your focus should be on the state of your mind as you're being mindful. So in this moment, what is the quality of mind? And when you're noting your experience, uh, that is the quality that we're aiming for. So don't spend so much time. It's a common question, but it's something that you have to come to terms with. Let go of the idea of uh, finding some reason for practicing or, or, or finding some indication that you're practicing correctly. Try and focus on what is the quality of mind when I do uh, repeat the name or the, the the label of the experience when I remind myself of the experience, when I'm clearly in contact with the experience and perceiving it just as it is. Try and look at that quality of mind. And it's not peaceful necessarily. I mean, it, it's not exactly a pleasant state of mind because it's related to the experience. If the experience is an unpleasant experience, it may seem like Mindfulness and meditation is an unpleasant practice. But as you create greater clarity, what you'll find is a resilience and that you're no longer bothered by the unwholesome, the unpleasant states. You're no longer disturbed by the pleasant states either in terms of desiring them or craving them. So what you'll find is that you're more able to face objectively with clarity uh, all manner of experiences.
I notice that there is a resistance to meditation which arises when I want to start it, sometimes preventing me to meditate. Once I'm meditating, this resistance ceases. What can I do about that? Yeah, this is a common phenomenon. I, I sort of alluded to it earlier. You just note the resistance. It's quite simple. Which is why noting outside of practice can be quite helpful for actually uh, creating the inclination to practice. So if you're mindful during the day, you'll be able to catch those feelings of aversion towards meditation or distraction by desiring to do something else, for example. And just note the resistance. When noting a distraction, like hearing, because of a car going by, should we stay with it until that particular car has gone, or should we stay with the hearing in general? Uh, well, with hearing, sometimes it doesn't go away, so it's something, that's the sort of thing you would note until you feel like your mind is, uh, is, is letting go of the experience. So you note it for a while because your mind was interested in it because you were, your, your mind perceived the sound. And then once you've done that, just go back to the rising falling. But there's nothing wrong with staying it. It's just probably better to go back to, to a more immediate experience of the body. But stay with it for a while. And if your mind goes back to it again, you can note it again. How do you drive out loneliness, especially when you see other people having friends and beautiful times while you are not able to do that? Well, we don't try to drive out feelings, as I mentioned. We're just trying to face them. So when you feel lonely like everything else, you would just note lonely, lonely, or sad, sad. Um, one thing you can do that is mentioned here in, in your question is try and pay attention to the triggers. Uh, so in this case, there's a perception of what is going on with other people. Uh, but that's still just an experience of seeing and thinking and judging, liking or disliking. You dislike the fact that you don't have uh, such beautiful times and friends, and you like the idea of having friends and beautiful times. So you should note all that. The solution to life's problems is not changing them, it's not fixing them, it's about changing your perspective on them so that they no longer are perceived as problems. Once you are able to perceive them just as experiences, you're able to untangle the mess that is life's problems and you're no longer disturbed by them. How do you forgive yourself and overcome guilt? How do you forgive others who have physically hurt you? Well, forgiving is useful. Uh, it's useful to actively determine in your mind with statements, I forgive such a person. Um, but the, the actual practice of overcoming uh, guilt and overcoming the grudge against others 
is about letting go of the grudge, seeing seeing the the state of anger of guilt. I mean, they're they're both anger based. They're both aversion based. Uh, see it as stressful. So it's about letting go, which is ultimately about seeing the uh, the nature of the thing that you're clinging to as not worth clinging to. So by focusing on and and observing and having clarity of mind about the aversion aversion mind states, uh, you'll see clearly that the aversion is not worth cultivating, is not worth clinging to, and that the thing that you're disliking or sad about or angry about is not worth it, and that the anger and the aversion is only a cause for stress and suffering. I mean, it's just, it's not theoretical. It comes from direct observation that these are not qualities of mind that you want to cultivate. So forgiveness can help you get there because it aligns your mind in the right direction, but ultimately it's not exactly about forgiving it's about letting go of the grudge or of the hatred towards yourself or others you let go of it only because you see it clearly that's the only way not because you uh, decide that someone is worthy of forgiveness or so on and this way you're able to let go of all uh, guilt, other people being guilty, yourself being guilty, even if it's it's righteous. So if someone has done something heinous or terrible, you still don't suffer from it by clinging to what they've done, right? Because that's the greatest suffering that comes from bad, from evil deeds. It's the clinging to the consequences. If someone hurts you, it's not the worst part. Isn't that they've hurt you? The worst part is how you feel about the fact that they've hurt you how you react to it, how you cling to it. How can we be sure that the habit of meditation will continue in our next lives? Well, it is quite special in that it has a deep impact on the mind, deeper than many things, uh, because it relates or it, it works on the level of ultimate reality and, and, and the fundamental building blocks of experience, like the moments of consciousness, uh, it has a prof more profound effect than other things. So it's much more likely to carry on with you than other activities. Like say you're kind and generous to others. That can be somewhat superficial if you're, you're engaged in religious practice of charity and, or even the religious practice of morality. So you can keep moral precepts. You don't want you you want to kill insects, for example, but you don't. It's not a very profound state. It's it's good and wholesome to refrain, but you're still a corrupt mind underneath unless you purify those intentions. Now, mindfulness does that sort of thing. Now that being said, you can't be sure, and that's what's quite scary about death and, and about the, the nature of reality is that you can't be sure of what the future is going to bring. And that's a real good reason to practice strenuously now. If a person has practiced to the point where their mind does let go and experiences freedom from suffering, even from just for just a moment, then they're said to have something like put a crack in, in samsara and uh, they, that can't be repaired. So in a good way, it means that they will inevitably return back to the practice and, and, and inevitably eventually become completely free from suffering. 
until that point, uh, you know, you work as hard as you can because there is no certainty. Should we label the same object multiple times to do repeated contact anupasana? Well, I don't know if you've read our booklet, but uh, yes, you should be repeating. You should be no, uh, reminding yourself, using the word to remind yourself of the nature of the object for as long as it exists. Uh, now, I mean, technically it's different moments, so uh, you're, you're noting individual experiences as they arise and cease. But... Um, We do that because that's the present experience. Uh, it's a good way to see arising and ceasing because you'll see things come, you'll see things go. That's about it. I don't kill cockroaches anywhere else except at my home. When killing cockroaches and mosquitoes, I feel very bad. If I don't, they are harming to my health. What should I do? Well, I mean, you can't, killing mosquitoes doesn't benefit you at all because there's always more mosquitoes. Uh, killing cockroaches, I don't know. I've never heard that they're harmful to health, but I assume that that's quite possible. It certainly doesn't excuse, you know, it's really harmful to your health, the bad karma of uh, murdering other living beings. So I don't know what to say. What you should do, you should stop killing. Find a better way. There's always a better way. Even if it means perhaps dangers to your health, it's far better than the bad karma of killing, which is indubitably harmful to both your mental and physical health. How can we lay followers make the most of Buddhist practice if we are unable to leave to a monastery? Well, I would recommend that you read our booklet on how to meditate. This is what we promote as a core Buddhist practice. Uh, I'd recommend that you take up the practice of the five precepts. You don't need a monastery for that. Uh, that you perhaps on... Um, days when you can, that you keep the eight precepts, maybe once a week or so, uh, that you take up the practice of charity, being kind and generous to others, maybe supporting, uh, maybe creating a Buddhist meditation group of your own. One thing that we're going to be looking at doing once we've opened the new center is setting up a mentorship program where people who set up groups in their area or are interested in, um, in, in guiding others in the practice can uh, take on the role of mentorship, which doesn't mean they actually teach or guide people through courses, but they help people get started in the practice. So they show them how to do walking, show them how to do sitting, the basic exercise based on the booklet, and uh, they guide people towards uh, bring people to the the at-home course so they help people sign up and they provide support and technical assistance in terms of getting people signed up and 
just being the first contact uh, and maybe that involves having a weekly group where everyone meets and does practice together and uh, shares their experiences so that's something you could do in your community and and another you know and so another aspect of this this program that we're going to set up is that those people who do um, take up the role of mentorship will uh, come together as as a online community the mentors and i'll be involved with that and we'll be able to discuss and if people have a problem we'll be able to provide guidance so that they'll have a connection with those of us who are actually doing the teaching uh, teaching of courses so um what so i guess in general one way would one what that means is that one way to to uh, make the most of your practice is to get involved with a organization or or community so we have an online community if you're interested you can join our discord server we also have every saturday in the morning we have a dhamma study group we're studying the Nikaya at the moment and so that's a way to get a sort of a community find something like that is watching a momentary experience not too much fixing on momentary experience and to completely ignore the context of experience I don't understand the question. Is so not you're asking a negative question. So you're you it sounds like you're saying is it not the case that watching a momentary experience that watching a momentary experience is too much fixing on momentary experience and completely ignoring the context of experience. If that's what you're asking, um that's exactly what the Buddha instructed us to do. So context is maybe not the right word, but the details perhaps. And and the Buddha explicitly, explicitly stated that one should not focus on the details. Nanimita gahi nanubhyanjana gahi. One doesn't grasp at the signs or the particulars. Signs are things like the sign of a man or the sign of a woman or the sign of a cat. Like if you hear a, a sound, there's some aspect of that sound that has a sign of it being a cat that reminds you, oh, that's a cat meowing, or that's a dog barking. So that's what signs means, and you don't grasp at those. And, and anubhyanjana is just the particulars, the various qualities. Is it loud? Is it quiet? Uh, is it pleasing or unpleasing? No, you just focus on seeing as seeing and hearing as hearing. Explicitly, that, that is explicitly the purpose of noting. It's to keep you from getting bogged down in the, the particulars and the conceptions and, and the, the meaning behind the experience because we're not interested in that. We want to see just seeing as seeing and hearing as hearing. Why? Because the salient qualities that we're interested in are very simple, that it's impermanent, that it arises and, and as a result that it's unsatisfying. <clears throat> Excuse me that there's nothing about it that could possibly be a refuge for us or some kind of lasting source of of peace and happiness because it's unpredictable and impermanent and three that it's not under our control that it has no inherent self to it that it can't be grasped as self that it isn't a part of our self that it doesn't belong to self there's no selfness to 
experiences at all. So these are quite simple, though hard to see, um, but they have nothing to do with the particulars or context. Those are of no value. Well, well, they're of no great value. They're of no inherent value, though there can be practical, practical value in terms of living your life. Uh, they don't have value for the practice. Chew nicotine gum while taking the eight precepts. Yeah, I would say you could still smoke cigarettes while keeping the eight precepts. It's a bit dubious, but um, it's there. Cigarettes aren't on the level that I would say you're you're really breaking the fifth precept. Um, you know, so of course that being said, it, smoking cigarettes is a problem, and anyone says it isn't. Some Buddhists try to say that it isn't a problem, but it is a problem. Just like chewing betel leaf and betel nut is a problem. Uh, it's a drug. It is a narcotic. It makes you feel good. It's a hindrance to your meditation. It's the kind of thing that you can use meditation to help overcome. So through mindfulness, it's not that hard from what I hear. I've never been addicted to these things. From what I understand, it's not that hard to give them up through the practice of mindfulness. So um, I guess I would say you don't have to consider that you're breaking the eight precepts either by smoking or by chewing nicotine gum, but you're certainly going against the the intention or the, the spirit of the practice. So it's something that you want to very quickly try to overcome very early on in your practice. How should one react to confrontational situations where if you don't defend yourself, you'll probably get injured or killed? Is it fair to engage in conflict in this situation? Yes, uh, even monks are allowed to be violent. Even monks are allowed to be violent in as insofar or to the extent necessary to escape conflict situations. So self-defense. Um, but it could it could go even escalate even so far as causing harm to the other person, breaking a bone, that sort of thing, incapacitating them. It cannot go so far as to killing. Killing is never justified. That's never allowed. Now, even violence for self-defense is dubious. It's allowed, but not likely to be very wholesome. So it's certainly something you should be very cautious about. But the Buddha did allow self-defense as a, um, a mitigating factor, not a mitigating factor, a negating factor to breaking the precept. We're not allowed to be violent except in self-defense. Uh, in, and only to the extent necessary to escape, so it can't escalate beyond what is necessary. You can't retaliate, like someone hits you and you get angry and you hit back and say it was in self-defense. No, you just enough to get away and to stop the conflict. How does one know that you are equanimous? Also, how can one remove reactive thoughts and patterns? that relate to monitoring one's meditation during meditation? 
Right? It's not so much, it's not so important that you know that you're equanimous, it's much more important that you are equanimous. Now, um, now that being said, if you feel equanimous, there are times where you will feel and you will know that you're an equanimous. So it's an odd question because certainly when someone is equanimous, there is a, an awareness that they are equanimous. It's quite a common thing for you to realize, oh, I feel very equanimous. Now, it may be that you as an individual don't feel that very often. It is quite common for people to be very reactionary. It's an ordinary state. We're all, before we practice meditation, it's very hard for us often to be equanimous. And so you might not experience it much. But if you start to practice meditation, you'll see the difference. You'll see where sometimes you're equanimous. But the point is not how you should know it. It's what you should do when you notice that you are equanimous. Uh, so if you notice a, an equanimous feeling, then you would note calm, calm, or equanimous, I guess, or neutral, neutral maybe better. Um, but the other kind of equanimity is the one that is lack of judgment. And so there it's not about knowing that you have that lack of judgment, it's about actually having the lack of judgment. And that's what's accomplished through the reminder. When you stay, set up in your mind a state of uh, objectivity, of noting the object and, and reminding yourself and seeing objects just as they are, then there results a mindful equanimity. Um, as far as removing reactive thoughts, uh, again, as I've said, we're not trying to remove anything. So when you experience reactive thoughts, we're just trying to see them clearly. And that changes your mind from being reactionary. It removes the reactionary quality of mind because it's subjective. So as you say to yourself, liking, liking, or disliking, disliking. But that relate to monitoring one's meditation. Uh, I mean, I guess what you mean, like judging your meditation? Again, you're not trying to avoid those, you're just trying to note them when they arise. So when you experience that judgmental quality, then you would note liking or disliking. Can one continue with their daily life as a lay person after enlightenment? Or what should one do? Uh, if someone were enlightened, they would apparently either kick, either die as a result of not being at all interested in continuing with lay life or else they would become a buddhist monk and then take on the the burden of life as a uh, monastic you know as a means of carrying out the buddha's uh, the buddha's injunctions for monastics but uh, the the theory is that a person who is enlightened could not continue to live as a lay person. They either be ordained or else they just pass away. But there's nothing that they should do. If you're enlightened, you've done what. If you're enlightened, you've done what needs to be done. There's no what should they do. If they're enlightened, they already know that nothing is needs. Nothing needs to be done. If you're asking this, it's quite impossible that you would be enlightened that an enlightened person would ask this question so don't worry you probably still have some ways to go is thinking and imagining the same concept it's not really a very useful question thinking is thinking imagining is imagining whether they are the same or different is not important thinking is thinking if there's imagining, there's imagining.
Uh, I mean, we use the word imagining to refer to a specific type of thinking that's often accompanied by visions. So you might also note seeing, seeing, if there's what you would call imagining. Just note it as seeing instead. Does a death and a rebirth occur right after each other? Is a rebirth then dependent on conception at the exact time of death? Well, there, there are there are types of birth that involve uh, rebirth in a womb or in an egg. Not all types of rebirth, but I don't know whether you'd have to say it was the it would be the exact moment. There is something related to uh, the conception that creates an attraction with the mind that leads to a association by the mind with the, with the evolving fetus. But the fetus is, uh, is independent of the mind, in fact, because there can be... It's just the fetus can't evolve in the same way without the mind. So... I don't know. I, I mean, I imagine that there are some there's some relationship between stillbirth and miscarriages, uh, and the mind that have to do with the mind being unstable, the mind being uh, the mind rejecting the fetus, the mind moving on, that sort of thing. Uh, I don't think it's interesting to talk about, and I have no clear um, information about what exactly happens. Uh, I, I don't think it's really the best thing to focus on, though it's very interesting and, of course, of practical interest to most people. What's much more interesting from a Buddhist perspective is how the mind arises and ceases and the fact that the mind arises and ceases every moment. So even during the process of what we call physical death, uh, the mind is still arising and ceasing as it does throughout life. So at the moment of what we call death, it's just another moment of cessation where the experience ceases and a new experience arises the next moment. Nothing changes fundamentally. Though it appears externally and it appears conceptually to have changed a lot, the actual nature of experience doesn't change. It's still just arising and ceasing. We focus on taking care of the mind through meditation, but there is less emphasis, if any, on training the body through physical exercise, except walking. Why is that? Is sports a kind of wanting and an issue? The body isn't considered valuable. That's why not. The body is not something you take with you. The body is not of, any, of hardly any interest to us at all in the large scheme of things. The body is something you've kept with you for only a matter of years, less than a hundred years. And that's nothing, that's meaningless. You keep the body for a maximum of 80 years, maybe if you're lucky, more than that. And then you let it go. So what's the point? What would be the point of training the body? Practically, there are lots of reasons to train the body in various ways. Training your hands to write, no, for example, or training your hands to type, as you had to type to type your question. 
training your muscles if you have a, a job that needs them. Um, but it's all fairly basic, and and you know, there's nothing to do with Buddhism. It's not like we would say, oh yes, as Buddhists we should train uh, people in typing. We should emphasize the typing so people could type. It's not anything to do with Buddhism. There's nothing. There's no reason from a Buddhist perspective to train the the body. There's no great benefit to having a trained body. There's a great detriment to to obsession with a healthy or or fit body. Uh, because it leads to intoxication, the, the intoxicated state of feeling the power in the body, feeling the health in the body, and just the obsession with it that wastes your time and energy. Also, the the qualities of the physical qualities that it, that it gives rise to can trigger uh, various unhelpful states in in terms of. Uh, making it hard for you to sit still it's hard for people who exercise a lot to sit still um because of the state of the body but also because of the state of the mind in terms of liking the movement and enjoying the physical exercise and so on there's no great reason and there's a lot of reasons to avoid uh, too much focus on physical training but there's no, no benefit no relationship with enlightenment. Can everyone become a Buddhist? Hmm. I mean, it's a bit of a loaded question. There's lots of ways you could answer that question, like... Absolutely not, simply because people don't want to. So if someone want, doesn't want to and has a strong aversion to Buddhism, you could say it's impossible for that person to become a Buddhist. right? But that's quite likely. I mean, it's so obvious that it's not quite, like, not quite what you're asking. If you're asking that um, whether people would accept anyone as a Buddhist or whether someone would say, look, you're not allowed to become a Buddhist, for example. Um, I could certainly see that, that that could be a reality simply because someone might um, desire the association without any of the qualities of mind relating to Buddhist practice. So if someone is, for example, a terrible, terrible, awful person committing all sorts of atrocities, but then sees some advantage, let's say in Sri Lanka, for example, um, someone is a terrible, awful, corrupt politician, but they claim to be a Buddhist in order to get people's votes in an election. I would argue that you could, you could, in a case like that, reject them and say that person is not a Buddhist. So, I mean, I guess more simply, a simpler example is if someone is breaking the five precepts, certainly I think any, I would support anyone to say that person's not a Buddhist and we will not accept them because they engage in killing, stealing, cheating, lying, drugs, and alcohol. But um, there are a lot of people who call themselves Buddhists and still do those things. So, I don't know. It's not a... It's a bit of a, you have to be a little more specific about what you need to know, why you need to know it, what's the importance of your question, because it's not, it doesn't sound like it's a, it's a question desperately in need of an answer.
might be. There might be some very important reason why you asked, but you should ask the question you want to ask. Dante, we've come to the end of the hour. I think we've asked all the questions we're prepared to ask today. Okay, thank you for your help. Thank you, everyone, for your questions. And thank you, Chris and Jim. Who else is here? Just Chris and Jim. That's right. Edit is here. Okay. Thank you, everyone. Have a good week. Sadhu. Sadhu.